Well, I'm going to start this morning a little unconventionally by sharing a video with you. The video is of some surveillance footage, so it's a little bit grainy, and there's no audio. So I figured if there were ever a video that we could show that would uh, just mask our technical difficulties, this would be the one. Uh, so I, I'm seizing this opportunity. Before I do so, I'm going to read uh, the teaching text for this morning, which comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So you can have this kind of in your mind as you watch the the video, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ready to come to the table? (laughs) Well, uh, that was uh, a surveillance video from... uh, Uh, a thwarted school shooting from last May at an Oregon high school. Uh, That was uh, a school administrator, a a, a track coach. I feel obligated to mention that it was a track coach, uh, who uh, Keenan Lowe is his name. And uh, the initial reports before the surveillance footage came out was that he wrestled the, the student to the ground and if that was wrestling, I am a WWE uh, <laughs> champion. Uh, <laughs> so this video has kind of been making the rounds. It came out in the trial, so it's been months since, since the event, but this is the first time that the surveillance footage has, has been available that I'm aware of. So it's kind of been making the rounds. And I, um, I, I watched it a couple of times this weekend and didn't really think anything in, in terms of the direction that I was going this morning. And then I just thought, what a beautiful picture of... Um, this idea of, uh, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Something that could have ended so horribly, uh, ended in, a, in an embrace. Of course, that's not the end of the story. There's um, this teen's future. Uh, but this uh, school administrator, he said, uh, he said this when, when asked about uh, those events. He said, uh, I... Um, I felt compassion for him. What an instinct. Somebody who has an assault rifle in school. I felt compassion for him. He said, and this perspective, I I find it hard to believe that he had this level of perspective at the time of the, the events, but he said, a lot of times, especially when you're young, you don't realize what you're doing until it's over. (laughs) I just, that's, that's mind blowing to me. Uh, So this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, climaxes a series of oracles about the restoration of relationship between God and his people after uh, the Babylonian exile in the the 6th century B.C. And in several important ways, this series of verses, these three verses in Jeremiah, kind of encapsulate Jeremiah's hopes for the future for the people of Israel. So you'll notice the first couple of verses say that this is going to be a uh, a break from the old covenant. It's a, it's a new covenant. Something new is being introduced. So there are a couple of key differences that I want to uh, that I want to draw out that you're probably aware of, but I think it'd be helpful to highlight them again. 
the old covenant versus the new covenant, there's a, one of the key differences in, is in a change of, of means in which the covenant is enacted. So there's uh, external commands in the old covenant, a move toward internal motivations of the heart in the new covenant. So from external commands to internal motivations of the heart. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So prior to this, as we probably all already know, we had the law written on stone tablets. So implicit here is this increased level of intimacy between God and God's people with the introduction of the new covenant. So in Exodus 24, 12, we have the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So in God's new covenant, we see his direct response to the way that sin had worked its way into God's people Israel. In Jeremiah 17, 1, we see uh, this picture, this similar image here. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. So contrast that with Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So where sin had formerly been inscribed, we have God's law being inscribed. And Ezekiel, another uh, prophet from the Hebrew Scriptures, speaking on Yahweh's behalf, makes use of a similar stirring image. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh, give them a heart of flesh. And again in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I like the way the New Living Translation has that. Notice who the actor is here. It's God. It's always God's action. I will be the one to give you a new, a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. The New, new Covenant living means dependence upon God's action to bring about transformation. So the first difference is internal, from external to internal. The second difference is a change in the extent of the covenant. So uh, first we have a select group on the mountain receiving the law of God. And in the new covenant we have this image of from the least to the greatest. So there's this change in extent. So again, Exodus 24, and I could choose a number of different passages to illustrate this, but this is just the most readily available because it's in my notes. Uh, in, in verse 13, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. So there's the leadership, and then just a couple from that group of leadership going up the mountain. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And then, of course, Moses stays on top of the mountain for 40 days. So I'm, I'm wondering if it took one day to get the law, and he just waited 39 days so the others could resolve all of the disputes. But anyway, he's the only one on top of the mountain, right? So it's, it's a select group. And then the new covenant means uh, uh, pouring out, uh, change in extent, from the least to the greatest. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Again, we see the way that the New Covenant described in Jeremiah is a, a direct response to the way that sin had worked its way into the community. So in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13, we read from the least to the greatest of them, there's that phrase again, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. So if sin is a problem for everyone, the redemption had better cover over everyone. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Again, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. 
just as sin had torn apart the people of God, torn apart their sense of community, their sense of wholeness, God's redemption and reconciliation includes all from least to greatest. So I want to kind of zero in on this idea of what it means to, to know God, this new covenant reality. What would it mean to, to know God in this sense? Uh, one commentator uh, commenting on what it would mean to, to know God said, knowledge of Yahweh denotes a cognitive capacity to recite the saving tradition. A cognitive capacity to recite the saving tradition. It sounds like the language that a biblical commentator would use, right? Really, just to, to boil it down, means knowing the identity-giving story. So knowing and being able to recite their identity-giving story, which is that we were once slaves, now we've been set free, we've been delivered. We were once held captive. God delivered us. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, we have this sort of famous passage that stands out among others in the Hebrew scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down. So again, we're being bombarded with these commands, the law, it's really becoming a part of who we are, and it's, it takes shape in the, in the household. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's this intimate understanding that they're supposed to have of their identity as God's chosen people and those who are shaped by and whose actions are informed by his love. So that's the first sense being able to sort of recite your identity as God's chosen people. The second sense of what it means to know God, and there are multiple senses that we could talk about, but we'll just choose two for today. The second sense is the, the idea of being able to, and it's related to the first, but being able to act faithfully on God's behalf. So not just knowing your identity, not just being able to recite it, but living into it by dispensing justice and mercy as God would in any given situation. So in Jeremiah chapter 22, uh, we see uh, this idea of knowing God, again, um, in, a, in a prophetic oracle. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse, verses 15 and 16. But a beautiful cedar palace does not make a great king. Your father Josiah also had plenty to eat and drink, but he was just and right in all his dealings. That is why God blessed him. And here it is, he gave justice and help to the poor and needy. And everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? He gave justice and help to the poor and needy. Isn't that what it means to know me? So the imagery from this oracle from Jeremiah is uh, very influential. From Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, is taken up multiple times in the New Testament. It's very influential in early Christianity. Um, it's even taken up verbatim a couple of times in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, when New Testament writers quote the words or phrases from Jeremiah's oracle, it's often clear from the context and the content of their, um, of their writing that these words from Jeremiah chapter 31 have significantly influenced the way they think about transformation in Christ. So this new covenant reality is something that is pulled again to the surface when Christ comes. 
look back at the scriptures and they say, ah, this is what this means. So in 2 Corinthians, just do one example here. Verse 3, Paul writing to the uh, church in Corinth, clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living gods. You see the imagery repeated there from Jeremiah's oracle. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Skip down to verse 6. And he has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So for Paul, the gospel, Jesus coming, rescuing, bringing salvation, this new covenant way of life, the gospel rightly expressed, coupled with the Spirit's activity, has the overwhelming power to soften hearts, to change hearts. Think again about the video that we just saw. The gospel rightly expressed, coupled with the Spirit's activity, has the overwhelming power to soften hearts. Having the law written on one's heart, one commentator wrote, is not so much a matter of having immediate knowledge as transformed attitudes and behavior. So it's not just knowing our identity, but being able to act faithfully as God's people, as God would act in any given situation. The new covenant does not have the law itself in view, but rather the whole healthy, transformed, fruitful life to which the law points. It's not merely a list of do's and don'ts, it's deeply relational. An example of this way of knowing is in Paul's letters. So he often will pray for, if you've read the letters of Paul, often will pray for the congregation uh, to whom he's writing in, the, in the, the space of the letter. So a couple of examples, and he often prays, if you'll, if you'll pick up on it, that they would grow in their knowledge of God. What does he mean when he says this? It's not just a knowledge of the laws of do's and don'ts, but it's a deeply relational knowledge. Philippians chapter 1, in the midst of one such prayer, he says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters. So there's this idea of knowledge and action being lived out. Or uh, in uh, Colossians, uh, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will, to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then, you will, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. So there's this idea of, again, a life well lived. It's a part of God's covenant, this idea of flourishing. And then our New Testament text for today in the lectionary is from 2 Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We've been, in, uh, been reading this letter a little bit in bits and pieces, bits and pieces in recent weeks. But Paul writing to Timothy, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
So things that you should do for reproof, for correction, things that you shouldn't do, and for training in righteousness. And this phrase, training in righteousness, the, the Greek word here is uh, paideia, and it is in reference to the whole training and education of children. There's this idea of a parental relationship that's in view, something that involves uh, nurture and uh, not just, again, not just a list of do's and don'ts, but something that is very relationally driven. Uh, one uh, counselor that I uh, really appreciate, he's a theologian as well, his name's David Ferguson, he says, a family can have rules, restrictions, and guidelines, but if it lacks love-filled relationships, maturity is hindered. He says, so it is with our approach to Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed, living and active, and intended to be experienced in loving relationship with the one who inspired it. This is something that we probably all get intuitively, those of us uh, with children in the room or or who spend a lot of time around children. uh, A list of do's and don'ts without any relational connection is probably unfathomable. That hasn't always been the case. There's a 2015 New Yorker article that's entitled The Power of Touch. And the author, uh, uh, Maria Konnikova, writes, touch is the first of the senses to develop in the human infant. And it remains perhaps the most emotionally central throughout our lives. This is a well-established truth, but we haven't always known this. She says, uh, writing in 1928, John B. Watson, one of the originators of the behaviorist school of psychology, I don't mean to... Uh, uh, speak poorly of somebody who's not here to defend himself, but just for the sake of argument here. This psychologist urged parents to maintain a physical boundary between themselves and their children. He said, never hug and kiss them. Never let them, it's funny, never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. Sometimes, maybe I just should go past that. Give them a pat on the head if they have made an extraordinarily good job on a difficult task. It's a nice little pat on the head. And I wonder what his idea of a difficult task is. We have enough trouble in our house like pulling up our pants after going to the bathroom, so I don't know if that would be a difficult task. Watson, this is uh, the author Konnikova again, Watson acknowledged that children must be bathed, clothed, and cared for But he believed that excessive touching, that is caressing, would create, and here's a good 1928 word, mawkish adults. An untouched child, he argued, enters manhood so bulwarked with stable work and emotional habits that no adversity can quite overwhelm him. And the article Konnikova says, now we know that to attain that result, he should have suggested the opposite. Touch as frequent and as caring as possible. Of course, this perspective is laughable now, not just because it's wrong, but because the opposite is true. We need positive touch. And I think New Covenant living involves the same sort of uh, light switch being turned on uh, between 1928 and now. 
There's this relational element, not that was missing, but that was so often overlooked by God's people. One of the most moving moments of that video for me is when they first start to embrace, and the young man sort of embraces him just so that he can be done with the hug. I don't know if you caught that, but he sort of returns the embrace and then starts to push away as if I can just get this hug out of the way and then we can, you know, I can run away or whatever he had planned. But then he sort of, there's a moment there that he kind of just succumbs to it. Uh, the hug continues and he realizes that this is, a, <laughs> this is a muscular person, I'm not going to be able to get away, just kind of succumbs to it and at the end, I love when they turn and you can see in the camera when the, the coach is just patting his back. So if there were any doubt that it was a, it was a violent uh, sort of a touch, it's kind of washed away in that moment. It's just being patted on the back in the midst of such a scary situation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul picks up on the same word, paideia. He said, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, Bring them up in the nurture, this word the nurture is paideia again, an admonition of the Lord. So as we close this morning, musicians, if you want to come, I want to just make a couple of suggestions about what new covenant living might look like in our circumstances. New covenant living, as Jeremiah describes it, is a reality where God's law is written on our hearts. So this implies that we have teachable, receptive spirits. If we're living a life defined by this new covenant, in our relationship to others, it follows that we'll have a tenderness toward others' hurts. We just can't pass by when we discern a hurt. Um, we'll have an inclination to celebrate when there's cause for joy. In our relationship to God, if we have a teachable, receptive spirit, We'll have sensitivity towards God's transforming presence, kind of a, a malleability, a sense that each time we encounter God, whether together or individually, things can change. From an attitude change to a seemingly impossible situation, I never want to lose that sense that every time I am in God's presence, in prayer, that things actually can change. Never want to lose that sense. God's transformation is actually possible in any, any given hopeless situation. And then in our relationship to Scripture, we have teachable, receptive spirits. God's law is written on our hearts. There's this um, slight change in perspective, but I think it's seismic. I've heard my dad pray, pray this prayer a number of times. He says, um, when coming to the Scripture, God, we ask that uh, not that we would shine the light of our intellects on your word, but that you would shine the light of your word on our intellects. What a seismic shift that is. And then secondly, it's a reality, this new covenant reality is a reality where we experience, the experience of God is accessible from least to greatest. So that means for us as a community, we prioritize those who aren't as far along in the journey. So that might be the young people in the house next door, on the other side of the wall here. Um, I wrap this up, get to the table. Uh, we attended a conference, Matt and I and, our, and Hillary and, and Annette, a few months ago, and there was a panelist of speakers, and they were uh, talking about uh, their dreams for the church. So they just started the, started the sentence and had, had each panelist finish the sentence, I dream of a church where, and one of the dreams has kind of 
kind of haunted me is the right word, but uh, has stuck with me. Uh, I dream of a church where Christians have a firsthand spirituality with Jesus that is vibrant. In other words, they're not just living off of somebody else's faith. Anybody say amen to that for your, for your children's sake? So I wonder if we might engage in this imaginative exercise as we come to the table. And you can stand, so I quit. I wonder if we might get someone, uh, someone in your mind who attends Solid Rock, who calls Solid Rock home. They might be here in the building. They might be next to you. They might be in one of the classrooms itching to get out. Get someone in your mind who calls Solid Rock home, might be a family member, a, a close friend, and especially as you, I know we've already co collected pledges, but um, as we start to think about what's involved in the next stage here in our building expansion, uh, finish this sentence. Because you are a part of this church, I want to see you become. So I think about Jack. Jack, because you're a part of this church, I want to see you become. I'm not going to try and finish it because I could not without uh, breaking down into tears. But think about that. Because you're a part of this church, be a grandchild, a child, uh, someone close to you. You might even think outside the box and, and think of somebody with whom you interact on a, on a daily basis at work and engage, take this imaginative exercise even a step further. Because you're a part of this church, and they may not be yet, I want to see you become. I'll tell you, maybe I can do this without crying, but uh, one of the things I, I want to see for Jack is every difficult situation that he goes into, he knows that there's a community of people here who has his back. So he can have courage in a way that he... Uh, maybe wouldn't be able to if, if Solid Rock didn't exist, if all of you didn't, weren't here and gathered. Because you're a part of this church, I want to see you become courageous. Because you're a part of this church, I want to see you become. So as we gather at the table, there's one part of this oracle that we didn't even cover. Jeremiah closes with these words. He says, I'll forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. So a third aspect of this new covenant reality, this way of living, is that uh, we find healthy ways to deal with conflict. Uh, we get conflict out in the open, we deal with it, not because this is easier in our own strength, but because we're experiencing the reality of being forgiven. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. Lord, We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the new reality that he has opened up and made possible by the blood of his cross. And we are a community gathered because of his incarnation, because of his love, and we are a new covenant community formed out of the love that brought Christ into the world. We ask, Lord, that you would empower and equip us as a community at Solid Rock to continue that act of bringing Christ into the world in all of the unique ways that you have gifted us. We ask this in, a, in the name of your Father, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.